You're listening to the Geek Out Loud podcast, the official podcast of geekoutonline.com. episode of Geek Out Loud, we are going to take a look, and it's just going to be a part one look, at uh, movie scores and how much we love them and which ones we love and which ones are great. So get ready to email me and tell me what I forgot, because this is your safe place to geek out. This is the Geek Out Loud Podcast. Hello again, everyone, and welcome to the Geek Out Loud podcast, the official podcast of geekoutonline.com. Before we really get going today, um, I need to get serious for a second and uh, offer an apology. Uh, Last time on episode 29, we uh, had an email from Colin. I I pronounce it Colin. It could be Colin. I pronounce it Colin because of one L. Um... So right off the bat, uh, again, I apologize if I'm saying your name incorrectly, sir. But uh, in in the time we were reading his email, I made some comments in an attempt to be funny about sentence structure and that sort of thing. Well, after he listened to the show, uh, I received an email from him, and basically, what uh, what happened is 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 you've got a guy who has a very busy life. He's got a wife and kids, and he was taking a few minutes out of his day. Um, just to participate in the show and to, and to be um, someone who added something to the show. And his email honestly did add to the show. Uh, but as I'm prone to do oftentimes, I took my joking and my picking on someone a little too far, and it came across as very mean-spirited and unfriendly. And the truth of the matter is, is what I seek to do on this podcast is, is A, entertain people, B, um, give you a place where you can feel like you're welcome, and you and I say you as the audience is welcome, and and it's and it's free to to come and, and talk about to me and, and geek out whatever you want to geek out about. And um, my comments and my joking caused Colin to feel um, as though he were being attacked, and and that is something I never want to do. And so because the offense was made publicly and because he felt insulted and and, and kind of come after, um, you know, and that was done publicly, I have emailed Colin and apologized, but I also wanted to use this public forum to do that and to apologize. And so I just want to say not only to you, Colin, but to the listening audience, I you know, I'm sorry. Um, Truly, truly, the, you know, the, don't wait for a punchline. Don't expect anything, you know, any any joke to come at the end of this because this is 
from the the best way I know how, from the bottom of my heart, I apologize because I never want anyone to feel offended personally when they listen to this show. I never want anyone to feel like I'm coming after you and insulting you. Um, when you listen to this show because the tagline is it's your safe place to geek out and if you feel like you've been offended or insulted then obviously it doesn't feel like it's a very safe place for you to come geek out with me so um, so I hope that you will accept the apology and I hope that uh, Colin I hope that you will stick around with us not just because I want to have you as a listener but because I want you to be able to have a place where you can just come and have fun and, and and it take you away and, and you know for the hour and a half or however long the podcast will go that you be taken away from the from what's going on in the real world and that you're just able to have a place to escape to and enjoy so um, I wanted to get that out of the way right off the bat because as I said I hate the idea that I have offended anyone and, and especially when they feel personally attacked and, and I would never ever ever do that so um having said that it seems weird to to have to move on from being serious and jump into a regular show but we do have a regular show ahead of us uh, as you can tell um and you will tell in a minute it's just me this week i am big honk and steve I'm your host on this, your safe place to geek out. Uh, I am the webmaster over at geekoutonline.com. That is the blog that has not been updated in about six weeks. In fact, I got an email uh, just yesterday from a guy, and he said, hey, whatever happened to that guy who was blogging about his top ten favorite supervillains? And, um, yeah, what did happen to that guy? Well, he's a slacker. Uh, we're going to try to get things back on track for everyone uh, as far as the blog goes soon. Um, and, uh, and and hopefully have things going there. want to mention a few things to you from the outset before we jump into your emails. Number one, if you live in the Greenville, South Carolina area, and you have a chance this weekend to head to Riverside Baptist Church, just outside of Greenville, I will be there at 6 o'clock that evening speaking. Um, there, it's very casual, come as you are, uh, and hopefully we'll have a good time Um but you are more than welcome to come. And if, you're li- and if you listen to the show and you come for that reason, come talk to me afterwards. I'll, I'll be honest with you. I'll probably be rolling into the parking lot on two wheels as I'm leaving uh, here in South Georgia at about noon that day. And it's about a five-hour drive. So barring any trouble, we'll be getting there just about on time. So if, uh, if, you, if you listen to the show and you're there, do not leave that evening without speaking to me. I would love to get to know you, love to see you. I'll be in Greenville Sunday night through Wednesday night. Um, I won't be speaking every night, but I'll be hanging out uh, in, in in the town that day, and I'll try to use Twitter and that sort of thing to let people know where I am if you want to, you know, not – I feel so pompous and arrogant. Not that I'm a celebrity, not that it's a con, but one of the coolest things in the world to me – when I got to go to Dragon Con with Derek and Graham was to get to meet people who listen to the show and get to hang out with folks. And so would love to meet you if you're in that area. I know one day Marcus, who was on the show with me doing The Dark Knight, I know that he will uh, we'll, we'll head to a comic store. And so I'll tweet about that, and you'll know where to find me. I, my Twitter name is Big Honkin, all one word, no caps, Big Honkin. So would love to meet you and would love to have you there. Now, that Wednesday night on February the 18th, I believe it is, I'll be speaking at the youth group at Riverside Baptist Church. So if you're a teenager and you're in the area 
and you can get away and get to that, uh, you are definitely welcome to come to that. And that'll even be probably a little more laid back than what goes on Sunday night. Um, I tend to cut up a lot more when I'm talking to teenagers. So uh, would love to have you show up for that if you can. Also recently, I've had a few guest appearances. Some of these um, are going to be a little bit old by the time you listen to this podcast. I was on the Sheet Geek podcast a couple of weeks ago. They're episode 17. We talked the Phantom Menace for about an hour and a half, and we had a blast. If you're not listening to the Sheet Geek podcast, you need to head over and listen to Kai and Faith and, uh, and what they do because those girls do an outstanding job. They just have a good time. They talk about the TV they like to watch, and then they'll pick a topic and talk about it. Faith is usually sitting there knitting, and, and it's their banter is great because there's usually a death threat involved in the show, and it's really funny, and it's worth checking out. So go check those girls out. I was uh, inadvertently on Views from the Long Box with my good friend Michael Bailey. Uh, now, he has a new episode up since I've been on there, but it's his next to latest episode that I was on. Um, called the accidental episode so head over to viewsfromthelongbox.com check that out and then I had the honor of guest hosting with Graham on the 10th wonder and we talked some heroes and I caused Graham to have the longest episode of 10th wonder ever and uh, we had a good time though it was fun and it was nice to kind of get my voice heard I guess you could say as it pertains to that show so check those things out and um, and let me know what you think. Uh, <clears throat> you can head over to the forums and let me know what you think. Geekoutpodcast.com slash forums. Geekoutpodcast.com slash forums. Join up with us. Talk to us. We've got a great community going over there. We're trying to have a good time. There's not too much negativity that goes on. Um, not too much bashing. We just try to enjoy ourselves and enjoy what we love and would love to have you join us at geekoutpodcast.com slash forums also email me geekoutonline at gmail.com geekoutonline at gmail.com would love to hear from you and speaking of hearing from you that's what we're going to do right now as we jump into your email First email comes from Dane, and this is actually kind of a funny story that Dane, you may or may not know, um, I think since the last time I recorded, I've had a birthday, maybe right after, or right before I recorded, I had a birthday. I don't know. I've post, I posted the episode after the birthday, but I recorded before the birthday. This comes from Dane. He says, howdy, Steve. So on the train in, out of New York City, I was catching up reading your blog post, and lo and behold, I saw the date of your birthday. I double-checked today's date on my iPhone and exclaimed, Hey, it's Big Honkin's birthday, and surprise. So on behalf of myself and the random guy on the new... <laughs> the random guy on the New Haven line who answered back with, Happy birthday, Big Honkin. Happy birthday, Steve. I hope it was a good one. Dane, it was a good one, and, um, and thanks for getting me a random shout-out from the random guy on the New Haven line. I really appreciate that. <laughs> I love it when random people kind of... I don't like the random conversations that people will have sometimes, like when a random person just comes up and starts talking to me like I want to talk to them. But I do like when random people just kind of jump in the fun and will say one or two, you know, make a little, um, you know, comment here or there. This one is an awesome email from Rich. And Rich says, Hey, Steve, I'm a longtime listener, first-time emailer. Long time, first time. 
I just want to let you know that you're naming the U.S. Airways pilot who safely crash-landed the plane in the Hudson River. Your Hero of the Week last episode was totally justified. Now, he's referring to um, uh, the episode I did with Dave where we talked about Sully, the the pilot who brought the plane safely down into the Hudson River. Um, and I was I seriously did not call him my hero of the week because I, I felt like I, because the the hero the superhero of the week is a bit of course and and I and I would never want to cheapen what that guy pulled off by having a good time with it because that's amazing I respect the crap out of that dude and appreciate what he did listen to this story Rick says I work for a company in Charlotte North Carolina and our CEO was a passenger on that flight we had we had an all-employee meeting last week and he briefly described his ordeal and named several other people on that flight heroes in their own right he said that almost immediately after takeoff the plane struck the birds which caused the engines to fail there was a loud bang the plane shook and the pilot calmly came over the intercom and said brace for impact now I want to stop right there and I want to tell you that if I'm ever on a plane and the pilot calmly comes over the intercom and says brace for impact here is how I'm going to brace for impact I'm going to genuflect you know cross myself and pray then I'm going to need to change my pants because that is not something I ever want to hear in my life uh, Rick, the CEO, said that his first thought was he'd never get to see his children grow up. He got misty-eyed at this point, and his voice broke. Of course. My goodness. The room filled with 200-plus people was completely silent as we waited for him to continue. He then tried to interject some humor, dark humor, but humor nonetheless, by saying his next thought was he hoped the plane would explode because he didn't want to drown in a sinking plane. I don't blame the guy. You know, I mean, oh, can you... Uh, I don't even think about that. The plane landed gently in the water of the Hudson, and said, and he said... Well, crap, we didn't explode. <laughs> I'm so disappointed. Oh. He said that maybe 5% of the people there were only looking out for themselves, but most people were doing everything they could to help out the people around them. One lady was traveling with her 18-month-old son and struggling to get into the aisle to leave the jet. A man sitting next to her offered to carry her son for her as he was stronger. You save yourself and I'll save your baby, he told her. That's, sir, that's awesome right there. I mean, that is a great man. I, I, just a, what an incredible situation. Everyone on that flight was a hero. Everyone who was on a ferry and offered help was a hero. Even the vendors at the ferry docks who offered the victims free coffee and donuts to warm up were heroes. I say this not to cheapen the word hero, but to highlight the capacity for heroism we humans have. You know, I, I don't think it cheapens the word hero. I, and what I think that, that the idea of vendors offering free coffee and donuts to to warm up um, for the people who were on the flight. I think that uh, I think that, that that word, the word that would sum that up is compassion. And that, you know, and that's the thing. And, and not to get too geeky or to cheapen this story in the own right, but that's one of the things that I love about um, superheroes in comic books, especially like a Superman. The point of Superman is not necessarily just to be an alien from another planet who has powers and abilities far beyond that of mortal men. Superman is that person who so believes in humanity. And this is the type of thing he would point to and say, see what they're capable of, Bruce? Because he'd be talking to Batman. You know what I'm saying? And, um, and so, yeah, the compassion and the heroism, the heroism that day was just amazing. He said, that said, I noticed it was recently your birthday, and so a belated happy birthday to you. Thank you, Rich. 
Thanks for the podcast, sir, and keep up the great work. Well, Rich, thank you for that story. I am glad you chose to share that with us because it really is a cool story. And um, and I just, I, speechless, speechless to, you know, to, that situation is amazing. I mean, it's just an amazing, amazing situation. This one's kind of a short one, but, it's, <laughs> but it meant a lot. He says, uh, it's from Dave, and he says, why I listen, one, having the crap week from hell. Two, listening to a podcast about a show I've never watched and really had no interest in, Doctor Who. Three, laughed my butt off and forgot what, <laughs> forgot for a bit what was going on in the real world. Now I want to catch an, catch an episode of Doctor Who. Thanks for the great work, Steve. And that's from Dave. Well, Dave, um, thank you, man. I really appreciate that. And I hope that things have gotten better for you in your life where you're at. And, uh, and I'll encourage you to try to check out some Doctor Who. It's a fun little show. I think you'll enjoy it. But I'm glad we could make you laugh. Um, I, I'm always surprised when people laugh, especially because, like, right now, I feel like I'm drowning. I feel like I'm not being very funny at all. But, uh, <laughs> but you know, it's like, it's like I feel like I need to try to throw in some Picard. Number one, we seem to be slugging down, slowing down. We need more speed, number one. Jordy, we need more speed. Whoop nine, engage. It was here. It was here. This one comes from Scott. Scott says, Steve, as a fellow King Arthur fan, I thought I'd bring to your attention a BBC program called Merlin. Even though it's light on special effects and, as it is family-friendly program, the plots are a little simple, it is a good television show nonetheless. The writers have woven in several of the legends of Arthur into storylines, and the characters are quite engaging. I seem to recall that reading that it would be airing in the U.S. starting at the end of January, but I can't seem to find it in, on TV Guide. Perhaps I was mistaken. Check it out if you get the chance, and that's from Scott. Scott, I've not heard of that, and I've not heard that anything like that is airing. I have a similar, um, a similar email from uh, Raj in the U.K., and so he's obviously familiar with it. I, I hope it airs in the U.S. In my luck, though, it'll probably air on the sci-fi network which i don't have i had for two days ladies and gentlemen the sci-fi network long enough to record some doctor who and then it's gone it's gone you know why because the cable company that i don't that i don't like but i have anyway because their internet's decent um they uh <laughs> what a lame excuse they um they they did they put it on without notifying everybody and so the FCC demands that you notify people when you add channels and I would assume the price probably would have gone up well I called them to ask about it and so and I'm also getting a high def TV most likely in this month if things go right and uh, so I called to talk to him about what happened to Sci-Fi Channel and um, what kind of high def channels they have. So the lady tells me about the whole sci-fi situation. Well, we, you know, well, the, the FCC uh, demands that we tell you. That wasn't her voice. She was a real sweet lady. She's like, you know, we, we got to tell you, and we didn't. So that's our bad. I'm like, that is your bad. Tell them I want it back, you know. And she's like, well, I sure will. That's a great channel. And I'm sitting here thinking, you don't watch sci-fi, do you? And, uh, and, of course, she's not in Georgia where I'm at. She, I think she was in Iowa, which was nice. Um, not Iowa, Minnesota. I don't know. Anyhow, you betcha. Um, so then I ask her, well, what kind of high-def situation are we looking at? Because I'm familiar with some other, like, satellite providers that have, like, every other channel is the channel previous to it. It's, it's high-def feed. And so I'm thinking, you know, when I upgrade to high-def and pay them money to upgrade to high-def, they should have 
these channels in high def. How many times can I say high def in a sentence? Six. Six. Let me let me say that one more time. Six high def channels in with our cable company. And she's like, now after June, when everything goes digital, that'll take right off. And I want to be like, lady, lady, you're, you should already be there. How is it these other companies? And so anyhow, I don't want to go off on my, on my cable woes, but, um, but Steve will probably be changing out come the high def time in his life because six, really? Really? That's fine. That's fine. This next one comes from Patrick. And uh, this is a long one, but I appreciate it. it. In fact, he says, Patrick says, disclaimer, the following contents of this email are uber extremely mega long. Reader listener discretion is advised. Howdy, Steve. My name is Patrick. I live in San Diego, California. Ah, San Diego. Breathe it in. I'm 13. As much as I'd love to say my geekdom started with Star Wars, which it did up until middle school, my true colors didn't emerge until a little show came along in September of 06. That show is Heroes. If you want to be cool, not that you need more cool cred, I suggest you insert a hero song from heroesmusictracks.blogspot.com, a site I made which I extract score from the show. Two iconic ones are The Tale Begins, filed under Genesis and Saving the World, Variation 2, filed under How to Stop an Exploding Man. Fire and Regeneration from the disappointing soundtrack release is also fairly iconic. And if you listen to my guest spot on the 10th Wonder, you'll know that that was Graham's favorite uh, piece of music from said soundtrack. Somehow I'd happened upon those amazing promos in the summer of 06 airing on NBC, watching a Japanese guy trapped in a cubicle, cubicle, that's me wikiing it up. Cubicle. I'm Max Headroom, ladies and gentlemen. Just for a second was amazing. Uh, let me read that sentence again because I went off on a Max Headroom bit that probably flopped. Watching a Japanese guy trapped in a cubicle reverse time just for a second was amazing. Witnessing an ordinary cop come to the revelation that he can hear people's thoughts? Exciting. But what captivated me the most, what absolutely got to be hyped to watch this show, were those shots of a man falling off a building, trench coat billowing behind him as he accepted his destiny, that he could fly. Absolutely epic. Peter is no longer my favorite character. He has since been replaced by Nathan Petrelli. What? But what I consider to be one of the best promotional campaigns of my lifetime did most was teach me to embrace my inner geek. More on that later. First and foremost, more heroes. I've been dedicated to heroes fans since uh, I've been a dedicated heroes fan since the pilot. Throw my money down to totally immerse myself in a sea of assorted merchandise and items revolving around this TV show. As I mentioned earlier, I found myself strangely attracted, no, not in that way, to the character of Nathan Petrelli. Why? I don't know. I don't know either. But the moment he escaped the clutches of HRG um, and the Haitian by shooting straight in the air, and when he skewed off to the side, causing a sonic boom, was when I jumped up off the couch and began to clap and cheer and clap some more. What continues to be my third, maybe even second favorite episode of date introduced me to the geek inside of me. More on that later. I enjoyed season two, and unlike you, sir, I enjoyed season three. I found the volume three conclusion, dual, war, duality, dual, monkey business, that's for you, Derek Russell, to be especially good. The best episode of the volume, in my humble opinion. Volume four looks amazing, and I can't wait to hear what you have to say about it. Mid-tangent, I'd really like to hear you go more in depth on your feelings concerning volume three. I understand that you enjoyed volume two even more, 
And although I understand your anti-negativity policy, a little well-intentioned criticism couldn't hurt, could it? Hmm, I don't know. Throughout the years, I've suffered minor ridicule from my passionate geekdom towards the show. No, not in that way. But as of today... <laughs> what? <laughs> but as of today, I've recruited, oh, five or six of my friends to the dark side of the force. I call that... Um, I typed this with James Earl narrating. Um, I don't call that the dark side of the force, man. You, you've made them Jedi. Heroes, as mentioned earlier, was the gateway to my geekdom. And now, sir, I will bore you and the listeners with how I happened upon your podcast. After lur lurking on message boards for a couple of months, I finally pulled out my chest and <clears throat> puffed out my chest and bravely ventured forth into the world of Ninth Wonders, the official slash unofficial fan site for Heroes. Sound kind of familiar? There, along with a number of Heroes fans and having the opportunity to geek out with them about the show I love, I discovered the world of podcasts. I started with the Ninth and Tenth Wonder. From there, I expanded my realm to a number of different ones about different subjects. Along the way, I watched all three seasons of Lost on DVD, becoming ready and prepared for the fourth season and allowing myself to listen to Lost podcasts without cowering in fear, scared out of my mind of spoilers. But that's for another time. Through Tenth Wonder, I heard about Skynex. Sadly, I don't listen to Shu because... I'm so anal about my television, I refuse to watch a show unless it's from the very beginning. Hmm. That's what I get for watching serialized dramas like Lost and Heroes. Through Skynex, I managed to somehow hear about your podcast. Several blatant plugs, perhaps? I jumped onto your podcast around the ninth episode, and being as anal about podcasts as I am about TV, I listened to all your podcasts before that. They weren't that bad. Dude, ouch. I'm the only one that can say stuff like that about my show. Through your podcast, I've been introduced to a variety of other things, from more podcasts to movies and TV to even more podcasts. But that's for another time, sir. This is getting quite long, as promised. So signing off as a proud member of the greatest podcast listening audience in the universe. See ya, Steve. Um, and he mentions that unlike everybody else, he doesn't have a podcast, but he does have a website, heroesmusictracks.blogspot.com, that he has put together... Uh, for you guys that are fans of the music of heroes, go check that out. Heroesmusictracks.blogspot.com. Tell him Steve sent you from his podcast that's not that bad. Now, Patrick thinks, I'm really excited. You know, Patrick said he's 13. I really like the younger people listening. I sound like an old man there, I know. But it, it's really cool to me that you guys who are teenagers and you're in high school and middle school and stuff listen because uh, it lets me know that you guys are the future of what we're going to be down the road. You're the future geeks. You're the you're the Steves, which is scary. <laughs> you know, sitting behind your computer doing podcasts and stuff. And I hope that you guys can take away from this what my generation of geeks did not do, and that is don't feel like you always have to be so negative. You know, Patrick asked for me to expound a little bit on my thoughts on Season 3 or Volume 3 of Heroes. I won't do that here because I did that a little bit on the latest episode of Tenth Wonder. I will say that I felt like they missed an opportunity for, for some really neat um, pseudo-Justice League, pseudo-Legion of Doom type stuff that could have gone on. They really missed an opportunity for some real SmackDown hardcore stuff, and, and I feel like the story got so convoluted and so messed up and it, and their pacing was so slow during that volume. And I know that that was one of the criticisms of Volume 2, but Volume 2, it seemed like the story was a little more engaging and not so convoluted. And I think that that was the key. In a story that they try to pull in so many threads and so many arcs and do so much with, to move it so slowly just kind of 
was off-putting to me. And so what they've done so far, this volume, volume four of Heroes, is the pacing's a lot quicker. Um, things are happening in every episode. The plot line is pretty straightforward. Not that I'm an idiot and need a, plot, a straightforward plot line, but I also don't like to have to take notes while I'm watching a show just to keep up with what's going on. You know, I don't like have to outline everything when I'm watching a show just to keep up with what's going on. And, and that's kind of how I felt uh, throughout volume three. But um, but that's, you know, if you want more of my thoughts, you can go listen to my guest spot uh, on 10th Wonder with Graham, who was gracious enough to let me come on with him. This one comes from Eric. And Eric says, Eric says, um, I just started listening to your wonderful podcast a few weeks ago. I found you via Stumble. That's not the point here, but I thought it was noteworthy. That is noteworthy because you're the first person who's ever told me that you found me via Stumble. Anyway, after listening to a few podcasts, specifically number 28 with your buddy Dave Jones, waxing intellectual about Doctor Who, I finally got curious. My weekend was spent grinding through the whole first season and a few episodes of season two. I'm talking about the new series with Eccleston and Tennant. I'd always thought the show was going to be utter garbage, but I'm pleasantly surprised. I've even sucked my fiancé into it with me. I doubt I would have taken a look at Doctor Who if I hadn't been listening. I'm, I'm glad to be part of the greatest podcast listening audience on the earth. No, that's in the universe, sir. In the universe. And he says, now your loyal fan, Alex. Well, Alex? Eric? I don't know. Anyhow, my point is this, Alex or Eric. <sighs> Two different names. Anyhow, my point is this. You're not a fan, sir. You're a listener. I'm not worthy to have fans. I'm not... Fans don't... I'm not, I can't have fans. I'm just a dude that sits behind a microphone and runs my mouth. So... Um, so yeah, but thanks for listening. I'm glad you enjoyed it. Dave's going to be excited because I really felt like I know so little about Doctor Who, having only watched a few. Like you've all now at this point, Alex, you've watched more than I have of Doctor Who, and so knowing that, I was really glad that David was patient with me as I just kind of asked him some questions, and we had a good time. That was really a fun episode, and so I hope to have Dave back on at some point and have a good time with him because Dave really. Um, I had a good Dave laughed at me and it's always nice to be laughed at or laughed with rather this one comes from James he says hey Steve first off I love the podcast I started listening to you over the summer and I can't get enough anyways I'm a huge fan of law so I was wondering do you watch the show and if so what are your thoughts opinions and likes about it adding to that the show just began its fifth season and the show is dealing a lot in time travel. Now, time travel annoys some people for some reason. I, however, think that it's bringing some awesome new storytelling to the show. I also know I'm not alone when it comes to liking it. So regardless of whether you watch the show or not, I would also like to know if you're a fan of time travel shows, books, movies, etc. in general. Anyway, keep up the great work on the world's greatest podcast, and thanks for giving us all a place to geek out. And that comes from James. James, I do not watch Lost. I tried to in its first couple of seasons and just could not get into it. it it was just too much it's another thing where it seems like the the pacing seemed to be off and um i don't know i just could not get into it and so no i haven't really been into it at all um but as far as the time travel thing goes my approach to time travel is like no one else's i think because a lot of times i'll watch a, a movie or a television show or something that deals with time travel and unless it's just a blatant thing I don't really, I, I don't really question it. I'm just like, okay, they're traveling time and this is what happened. Uh, it always surprises me when someone who's a lot smarter than me gets on and says, well, why didn't this work out? Or why didn't they do it this way? Or why didn't they do it this way? And I'm like, I didn't even think about that. That's so true. Why didn't they? But 
that's what takes away the fun of anything that deals with time travel for me is when people you know don't suspend their disbelief and start questioning things now a blatant loophole to me it, for an example would be clark in reckoning when the episode when jonathan kent died and the first half is he tells lana his secret he proposes to lana they're going to get married and what have you and um she dies mr coach klein she dies and Clark goes back in time, thanks to the help of Jarrell, and, and basically saves her. Here was my problem with what Clark did there. Instead of um, coming back in time, and he was right back at the barn where we, where we met him at the very first part of the episode, instead of looking at Lon and saying, all right, here's something I need to tell you. You're not going to believe it. Let me take you to the Fortress of Solitude. Here's it Not necessarily propose to her, but just say, I did this earlier today, and you died. Mr. Coach Klein, you died. You, you know, and saying, so here's what I need you to do. I need you to not leave tonight. Instead of doing that, Clark didn't tell her. And that was really frustrating because if I had that second chance, I would just say, what do I need to do to prevent this from happening again? And, you know, there you go. That's, that's kind of how I would handle things, but they did not. And that kind of bothered me about the time travel in that particular episode. Great episode, mind you. Um, but it kind of it bothered me it was it was one of those things i was like just tell her already gosh and that's more about clark's not willingness to tell than anything so um but no i don't have a problem with time travel stuff i really like it however i don't watch law so i'm sorry to disappoint you to that end um this one comes from matt who emailed us in the last episode and so i guess there needs to be a, a bit of an apology passed out to matt because he kind of felt a little attacked too he says, hey, Steve, first I have to say I get sarcasm and will continue to be a listener even when you railed on me for my top ten list, which would have made more sense if you had read it number one through ten, not ten to one. As for the Batman and Robin movie, I can, only, I can find only one redeeming thing. I feel the movie really tipped a hat to Adam West, the Adam West Batman and Robin series. Other than that, it was not a very good movie, and it was in my top three literally because it was a Batman movie. Clooney was, in my opinion, the poorest choice to play Batman. He is more of a Rat Pack-type personality than the underlying angst that it takes to play Batman. I've always wanted to see Bruce Campbell in the role. He played Batman in an OnStar commercial a while back, and I think he would have done a great job. Wait a second. Stop. Hold up. Wait a minute. Put a little pause in it. Bruce Campbell was Batman in that OnStar commercial? I never knew that. This, ladies and gentlemen, is a first Steve's discovery of a of a of a of a, of a piece of trivia. Uh, you know, not that I know all trivia, but what. I didn't know that at all. He did do a great Batman. I would have loved to have seen him in the role of Batman now that you say it. I still want to see Bruce Campbell as Plastic Man, though. I feel like he could pull off a better Plastic Man than a Batman. But for that commercial, I remember that commercial, sir. Never knew that at all. Thank you. Thank you so much, Matt, for letting me know that because I never, ever knew that. Oh, my Lanta, that's crazy. He says he has a dark sense of humor that Bale and even Keaton have to pull off. I mean, that's amazing. I never knew that. Wow. As for asking to be on the show, you do it every week and try to get on the Force cast. Why can't I? Because it's my show, man. <laughs> he put a little smiley face there, so I'm not... Seriously, I love talking Batman. I'm behind the comic storylines, but I love discussing the psychology behind the character. Keep up the great work. I cannot wait to hear the next podcast. So that comes from Matt. Well, Matt, I want to respond. I, see, my problem with Batman and Robin, if I felt 
that what Joel Schumacher was doing and what George Clooney and all those other people were doing in the making of this movie was kind of tipping their hat to or paying homage to the the 50s Batman or 60s Batman television show, then um, wouldn't have a problem with it. Let me tell you what's a tip of the hat to the 60s Batman show. Batman Forever, Robin climbs up onto the Riddler's little island. He says, holy rusted metal, Batman. And Batman stops and says, what? He says, it's metal and it's rusty. It's got holes in it. You know, and that was a nod to that. That was the homage to that. To have a whole movie done in that style in the 90s, 30 years after the fact, 30 plus years after the fact of that show, I don't, I, I don't think it worked. You know, and what it showed me was that Schumacher was more familiar with that show than he was the actual character of Batman as he was portrayed in the comics, whether it be in the 60s, 70s, 80s, or at that point, the 90s. And I think that had Schumacher, it, it just seemed like Schumacher didn't do a lot of research. It seemed like um, Batman Forever was more about, let's start turning to this type of of storytelling for Batman. And Batman and Robin was just full on. And Joel Schumacher's a great director. I mean, this guy did uh, A Time to Kill, for crying out loud, and that's an outstanding movie. Matthew McConaughey, Sandra Bullock, Samuel L. Jackson, yes, I deserve... Wait, yes, I deserve them. Never mind. I'm not even going to try to do it now because I messed up the joke. You know, but Joel Schumacher, he is a good he is a good director, and and so I would never look at Joel Schumacher and say, well, he's he's poor director. He can't do what he's doing. But I do think that that movie kind of showed me that the only Batman he was familiar with was the Adam West Batman. Now, understand, I love the Adam West Batman show. I love it for different reasons than I love, say, Tim Burton's first Batman movie or The Dark Knight or Batman Begins or what have you. I love it because it is so nostalgic for me, and it was my gateway into the Batman character, that and Super Friends. And so when you grow up with those things, you never get this dark, angsty Batman all that much. You get a Batman who is, um, I don't know, you know, as a little kid, I bought the cheese. I bought the cheese factor of that. I really believed he was sincere when he'd say, you filthy criminal. You know, I mean, I'm really, that was a terrible Adam West. That sounded closer to Christian Bale saying that. I'd love for Christian Bale's Batman to walk in and be like, you filthy criminals. You know, but, um, but you filthy criminals. You know, I, I bought that type of stuff. I bought the elaborate traps and schemes and the tune in, you know, next week, same bat time, same bat channel. I, I bought into all that stuff as a kid because that's kind of what I saw superheroes as being these altruistic, very clean cut, very much law abiding citizens. And so, um, but now as an adult, and then and even then as a, a very young adult, when Batman and Robin came out, I recognized that, and having collected comics for a while, I recognized that this is not what they should be doing with Batman, especially after what Tim Burton did in the first Batman. Now, I didn't like Batman Returns. Um, I liked Batman Forever, and, and I felt like Batman Forever had that same, you know, had that same... Um, stylized feel that Tim Burton does with a little bit of color added into it but it also had a little bit of humor here and there that, that kind of worked for the time period. Jim Carrey I love Jim Carrey as a Riddler I'll go ahead and say it here but Batman and Robin I don't feel like it was a tip of the hat as much as it was just this is the only way that they knew how to make Batman and that's what saddens me most I guess I would say about that movie um, we're going to get to one more here uh, just because, and we've got several that we need to get to. Um, 
this is uh, from Jim, and Jim says, Hey, Steve, I want to thank you for all you do over at Geek Out Loud, the official podcast of Geek Out Online. Shoe and Skynex. Well, you know, thank you. I really appreciate that, Jim. Every time I feel the stress of life bearing down on me, real life bearing down on me, I just pop on the iPod and listen to your banter, and it makes all the troubles of the world drift away and reminds me just to take a deep breath, as I like to tell my wife, breathe like Vader, and go on. I want to share with you my latest drama, not because I'm long-winded and needed to talk, but because I think it'll help me illustrate my appreciation for Geek Out Loud. Earlier this year, my wife and I decided to put our house on the market so we could upgrade and take advantage of the slump in the housing market. Little did I know at the time, but I was in for some major home repairs when I was simply going to replace the worn linoleum floor in our master bath. One night, after I finished ripping up the old linoleum, and I thought, hey, I need to repair some of the grout in the shower, so I'll just tackle this while the kids are sleeping and get a jump on tomorrow's work. Let me tell you, there's no such thing as an easy home repair job. Much to my horror, the shower wall crumbled in my hands as I was trying to remove the damaged grout. Long story short, relatively speaking, I had to rip out the shower, tear down the wall, and the siding in some places all the way to the wall. Oh, oh, I'm sorry. Tear the wall down to the siding in some places and rebuild anew. A new wall, a new insulation, new paint, new lights, new shower, and new floor tile. Almost two weeks later, I'm almost done. As you can imagine, home repair is not my day job, so I've been doing this at night after working a full day. Dude. Bless your heart. My hands are cracked from the concrete, sucking all the moisture out. My legs and arms ache from carrying tile and mortar up from the garage on the first floor. But there's a silver lining in my story. Wait for it. Geek out loud. That's right. I put on Geek Out Loud while exposing myself to the noxious fumes, I mean painting, the other day, and it made the mundane job of priming and putting the final coat go that much quicker. I didn't ache so much anymore as I had a friend to help me get through the job. Um... I want to say this to you, Jim. You know, I appreciate being there with you, and I appreciate your kind words. I hope you realize that were I the friend that were there as you were going through the job, basically my role would be the exact same thing there in person as it is here on your iPod. Because, sir, um, manual labor up until like last year, I thought manual labor was the president of Mexico. I, you know, I had no, I do not do the manual labor thing very well. Hence, I'm rather a big guy, and hence is probably one of the reasons I'm single. Ladies, I oh, did not want to do that joke. I totally did not want to do that joke. It just happens. It's like, it's like a reflex. I can't help it. I'm sorry. But no, I would, I would turn over a bucket and sit down and just start talking to you, and that would be my role. I might hand you something if you need it. So... <laughs> So, you know, I appreciate the fact that you, that I'm glad that I could help the, the job go a little bit quicker. He says, more to the point, however, today while I was applying the grout to the shower and eventually the floor, I finished up the 25th anniversary, episode 26, the Christmas episode, and episode 27. While I admit I was a bit hesitant about the dance party idea, it made my day. My wife came in to see how I was doing and was shocked to see me dancing in the partially finished shower grooving to the dance party. As you would say, thank you so much for making my chore fly by. Keep up the good work and I can't wait. I love that your wife walked in on you while you were bebopping trying to fix the shower. I could, honey, how's it? What are you doing? Is this what you do in here? Is this why it's taking two weeks? Because all you do is sit in here and listen to your little iPod and dance. Oh, man. No, that's, that's awesome, dude. He says, keep up the great work. I can't wait to get back and catch up with your next journeys down the geek lane. May the force be with you, my friend. And that's from Jim. P.S., he says... I've got my three-and-a-half-year-old addicted to It's Too Late for Chocolate Pie. All he wants to hear on the iPod is that, Indiana Jones, and Boogie Shoes. Well, okay, then. All right. That's great. Um, 
Jim, thanks for that email. It means a lot to me. And uh, and man, I I also had one from Dave in the Quiet Corner. I, I don't have time to read it real quick, but Dave basically talked about standing outside. He works for the power company and back during the storms and everything that they had um, up where he lives, he had to uh, just kind of listen. He was listening to it, and um, he uh, it kind of helped him get through the night because he was there all night, you know, in, in the dark. And so stuff like that really honestly means a lot to me. Uh, and I'm trying to find the one we got and dude i'm sorry i've lost it but someone emailed in and talked about working so far from their home and this might have even been on the last episode that i read this email uh where you know listen he listened to the dance party like three or four times uh on the way home and um and trying to because he had because that's he was working so far and he only got to be home every so often to see his kids and his wife and and so you know to me I've said this before and I'll say it again. I set out to do a podcast. You know, I just wanted a place to have an outlet for my geeky stuff. And to know that people listen and participate and you actually enjoy it, that means so much to me. And so I thank you for letting me know that. And and, and I really appreciate um, your kind words. It means a lot. If you want to get in on the discussion, email me at geekoutonline at gmail.com, geekoutonline at gmail.com. I will say this. Uh, I do have a few more that will go on over to the next episode. I do need to get back on geekoutonline.com and and finish up my top 10 supervillains. Love to hear who your top 10 supervillains are. Would love to start. You know, we did some of that with our top 10 superheroes and stuff. If you want to just give me 10 names and that be that, or if you want to expound on it, that's great. Would love to hear from you on that end. Um, today, on this particular episode, this is, as I said in the intro, uh, one of those things, one of those shows that's going to cause you to um, email me and tell me everything that I forgot. Understand that today is not going to be a complete list, even for me, um, because it is so. There's so much to talk about, and a lot of times each one of these things deserves its own particular episode and we may go back and revisit that concept down the road you know maybe doing once one a month or something like that um but someone had got on the forums a new guy on the forums he said he we should discuss movie soundtracks and so that's what we're going to do today we're going to talk about movie scores in particular orchestral themes We're going to kick off uh, this discussion. What the music you're hearing and you heard as we came into this is the theme from Dragonheart. The actual name of the song, the track, is "The World of the Heart," and it's the main title. is a theme from uh, the movie Dragonheart. Now, the thing about music scores and, and movie scores is so often you don't have to have a good movie to have a great score. Now, understand, I love Dragonheart. I think Dragonheart is an outstanding movie I, it's such a fun movie this score though is a lot more epic in its scope and in its sound than even the movie is I, I think the movie comes off a little more playful than what even the score is you, like you hear this music and you're kind of prepared for something very special and very big now 
One of the neat things about Dragonheart is it, it was one of the first fully realized CG characters, uh, or it had one of the first fully realized CG characters in it, and that would be Draco, the dragon as portrayed by Sean Connery, or the voice of Sean Connery. And um, Dennis Quaid played a knight named Bowen. Uh, David Thewlis was in it as Einan, and that was my introduction to David Thewlis. And my friend Thomas and I, we used to have a great time talking, quoting lines of his from um, from Dragonheart. We'd walk into the dorms where we were at college together, and I'd see him down the hall, and I'd be like, "Wow, wow, wow! It can't be, but it is," you know. Or we'd do and one of his other lines that we always just laughed about is, "How unmotherly of you." Uh, so it, the movie itself, is, it's a good movie, it's a fun movie, but the score is one of those musical scores that is ten times better than the movie, composed by Randy Edelman, and it is just fantastic. You have um, this one, the, the, there's also a track called To the Stars, Wonders of an Ancient Glory. Um, it's, there are, there's, there's one called Mexican Standoff, which is kind of funny, and that's from like one of the, um, the battles. Uh, or it's when uh, I think Draco and, and Bowen are fighting each other and they actually literally come to a standoff where if one kills the other, the other one will die. And so um, it's, uh, it's a fun movie, but the score is one of those that you can put in and listen to. I love to read to the Dragonheart score. It's, it's a, lot of, a lot of sweeping strings and, and, the, and the orchestra just... It, it has that music that just kind of starts slowly and builds and then... And then it'll drop back into kind of a, a cool melody. And I don't know much about music at all, except that I know what it, it, what emotions it evokes in me. And Dragonheart is one of those that really kicks it up a notch and, and just is a great, great score. If you're not familiar with it, try to find Dragonheart if you like movie scores at all. Randy Edelman also did the score for Dragon, the Bruce Lee story. I don't remember who played Bruce Lee, but I remember Lauren Holly is in it, and she's hot. Um, so uh, if you're familiar with that score it's the same guy who did that and I'm not familiar enough with that score to really talk about it except to say that um, these are two of the ones that are his most familiar I believe scores that Randy Edelman has done great great score it's one of those that I would definitely definitely encourage you to check out now you can tell that I'm by myself because I'm not really I don't I've gotten so used to having a host with me and so now I'm, I'm all alone. There's no one here beside me. My problems have all gone. There's no one to deride me. But you gotta have friends. No singing, donkey! Um, anyhow, I'm not going to talk about the Shrek score. Even though Shrek 2 has that great um, cover of I Need a Hero. <laughs> I love it. I'm sorry. I I remember watching Shrek 2 in the theater, and I had um, a friend with me that's also like big into 80s music and everything. And when, uh, oh, what's her name that plays the, the fairy godmother? Not the fairy god. Is it the fairy godmother? Anyhow, she begins to sing Prince Charming's mom. Where have all the good men gone? And where are all the gods? I, I looked, I'm like, what is this song? What is this song? And then I realized, it's, I need a hero. Oh my gosh, she's lounge, she's lounge lizarding. I need a hero. And then it kicks in and had that great 
breaking it where it actually got some of the Shrek theme in there, and I just always thought that was cool. Um, the next, you know, next we're going to talk a little bit about the, as you can hear, the music switching over now. Uh, one of the great trilogies to come out in recent years has been the Pirates of the Caribbean trilogy. Now, I loved Curse of the Black Pearl, and one of the successes of the Curse of the Black Pearl was Johnny Depp as Captain Jack Sparrow. And the reason that was, and I really think that's what made the movie more than anything else, reason being is we hadn't really ever seen a character like him before. That, that character so captured everyone's imagination. The second and third movies may not be as, as heralded as that first one. I really liked At World's End better than I liked Dead Man's Chest because it felt like stuff was happening. Um, the first Pirates of the Caribbean movie, strangely enough, you may be surprised, a lot of people think it's Hans Zimmer, but it was actually Klaus Badel who scored the Pirates of the Caribbean, uh, The Curse of the Black Pearl. Um, I really, really, really liked his score. It's, it's one of those very memorable, you feel the adventure, you feel the the, the feeling of being out on the sea and swashbuckling and swinging from the mast and hoisting the mainsails and swabbing the poop deck. and It's just a great, great score. Now, Hans Zimmer stepped in in Dead Man's Chest and At World's End, and he took over the job of scoring these movies. Now, Hans Zimmer is no, is no stranger to pirate movies. How do I know this, you may say? Go check out the, the score to Muppet's Treasure Island. It is composed by Hans Zimmer, and you'll be surprised at how much like some stuff from Pirates of the Caribbean itself. Um, that is not to say Hans Zimmer was ripping off himself or that Klaus Bedelt was ripping off Hans Zimmer from Muppet's Treasure Island, but it is to say that both of these guys know how to evoke that feel of, of, the, of what it is to be a pirate in this time, and the way that these, the way that these films romanticized um, pirates back in the day because you, 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 it's not lost on me that pirates are bad people you know especially today when you start talking about piracy and and, and I don't mean like internet piracy and that sort of thing I'm talking you know the guys like the ones that took that ship uh, I think it took an oil tanker they took an oil tanker and I don't even remember how that panned out but you're talking about guys who jump on to boats with guns and it's not the fun of the open sea and it's not the thrill of hunting down buried treasure, it's, you know, it's some pretty brutal stuff. Um, but in this case, you know, this is, of course, a, a fantasy, and it's an adventure story, and it's really going to romanticize that era. And these guys do a great job of capturing that. I particularly enjoy um, the, the, the music from At World's End. The first song, as, as the movie World's End opens up, At World's End opens up, we open to a line of people basically walking to... A hangman's noose and one little boy begins to sing a pirate song and they all join in as they're going to their deaths as they're going to this executioner to be hung or to be hanged I should say and um, later on throughout the rest of that movie the tune of that song is incorporated into the sweeping score that is there, so much so that I found myself walking out of the theater humming that that particular tune. Now, and there's another thing I want to say about good movie music, orchestrated movie music, orca orchestral, if you will, movie scores, is that if I find myself actually humming the tune, listening to, you know, after seeing a movie, not long after seeing a movie, if it, if it stuck with me that much, if I find myself 
really enjoying it again and again and again. There is a there has to be a re-listenability to it, real listenability to the music. And I think that World at World's End has that. Definitely Curse of the Black Pearl has that. And I'll be honest with you, uh, Dead Man's Chest has a great score. It is a it is a fantastic score. Hans Zimmer and Klaus Bedell do a great job with these three movies. And, and you kind of get that feeling of adventure when you listen to them. It's one of those that when you're riding down the road, you kind of can envision yourself taking off on the open sea. And, um, you know, you don't want the cabin fever if you watch them up at Treasure Island. You know, cabin fever. <sighs> Having said that, moving on. Um, here's one that you may not, you may be surprised by. Steve Jablonski, uh, his score to Transformers. Not uh, not Vince DiCola's Transformers score, which was awesome in an 80s sort of way, but Steve Jablonski's score to Michael Bay's Transformers. Uh, Jablonski does an outstanding job of making you realize that you are in a world like you've never been in before, a world where cars turn into robots, and it's not something techno and, um, you know, 80s rock, that it is something awe-inspiring to know a because i mean here are these sentient robots that let us know that whether they're mechanical or not there's intelligent life out there but also just to be in the presence of these guys has to be kind of awe-inspiring my favorite track from transformers the, the my favorite track from transformers the score is arrival to earth and it is and what's going on during the time that music's playing is exactly what the score suggests it's when the autobots arrive on Earth, and and the climax of that point is because you see the meteors crash down, you see the robots leave, and they go uh, kind of go hunt down um, vehicles to take the form of, and and that whole thing kind of ends with Optimus Prime rolling up and transforming, and then we get that awesome voice of Peter Cullen, "I am Optimus Prime," you know, and. I sat in the movie theater. I'm like, heck yes, you are. My little sister was with me, and she was so embarrassed. She's like, she just started dying laughing. She's like, how old are you? I'm like, shut up. He's Optimus Prime. Um, but that I love. This is one of those things that I'll. This is another one of those that I can just listen to over and over and over and over again and not get tired of. This whole score. And Jablonski did a great job of scoring different themes for the Autobots and the Decepticons for Sam, you know, the, the actual music from some of the parts, especially the end battle and the end scene there on the streets of that town in, in Arizona, just phenomenal, just really, really good stuff. And and uh, and I don't know if, if Jablonski, I did not do my homework on him. I don't know if he has worked with Michael Bay on a regular basis. It was very much a Michael Bay film score, but it was so neat and it sounded so cool and it was, and it really kind of defined more than any of the other rock music or pop music they put into this movie, this score really helped kind of define the feel of this of, of this film. When Bumblebee is being taken down by Sector 7, you know, the, the, the sad, haunting music that plays then, as Optimus is talking about, talking there up on the observatory or whatever, and he's finding the location of the AllSpark cube. And he's talking to Jazz, and he's talking to Ironhide, and they're talking about what, you know, why are we even fighting for them? And Optimus gives a speech about, you know, it is the right of all, you know, freedom is the right of all sentient beings. And he ends that with Autobots roll out. And 
it the music that plays there just is so fitting and it's and it so fits in to what's being done and it doesn't stick out like a sore thumb that's another thing i'll say about an orchestral score is that it doesn't call attention to itself that it is that it can be sweeping that it can be huge that it can be big without attracting attention to itself that it is more of a compliment to the film you're watching rather than its own personality because sometimes the music and the film can be at odds and begin to fight and, and the thing about all the scores that I mentioned they really play into the movie where you would miss them if the music wasn't there but you're not distracted because the music is there and so and I think that Jablonski's score on Transformers does that particularly well. You can't talk about movie scores here lately without talking about uh, Zimmer's work on Batman Begins and The Dark Knight. These are two phenomenal scores. Now, what Danny Elfman did for for Tim Burton's Batman back in 89, uh, Zimmer had hasn't really done for Batman here in the 21st century. Uh, Elfman gave Batman a definitive score um, that he also used for The Flash and he sampled for Spider-Man and you even hear a bit of it in his Hulk score, uh, though his Hulk score is much different than the rest of his superhero stuff. Uh, Elfman also had that incredible piece of music at the end of the first Batman movie, the finale. I mean, it's aptly titled Finale, and, and it's, of course, we see it as the, we hear it as the camera is panning up from Vicki Vale to the building where Batman is standing, and off in front of him is the bat signal. That is a phenomenal piece of music by Danny Elfman, that finale. The, the theme that, that he gave Batman is a great definitive theme, and I was kind of hoping, in a way, as a fanboy would, that Zimmer would incorporate that theme into these new scores, Batman Begins of the Dark Knight. He has not done that. He's given Batman a bit of a score, and it is a good score, and it's a solid score. And these scores, Batman Begins of the Dark Knight, are outstanding pieces of music. Now, there's a thing that's kind of... Um, frustrating if you buy the CD or, or get off of iTunes the Batman Begins score and that is the titles of the Batman Begins score. They are all various genus or geni I guess I should say of bats. They're scientific names for bats. Uh, it, Which in a way is not surprising. I, I'm an idiot. I've had this how long has this movie been out? I've had the soundtrack for that long. And I just the other day started Googling these words to see what they meant to try to get ready for this because I was like, I'll really do some research for the podcast. And every track comes up, it's a genus of bat, a genus of bat, a genus of bat. Now, genus is in, you got kingdom, phylum, order, class, genus, and species. So you have, a, or family, species. I don't know. Anyhow, my point is this. Um... You, these are all types of bats, and I was really expecting something a little, not cooler. Yeah, cooler. I was, you know, when you, cause it's like, oh, it's Latin for chase, you know, molasses. Uh, it's Latin. No, it's a bat. Um, yeah. <laughs> it's like I've got the, I've got the, uh, I've got the, uh, the, the titles here. Lassirius, Lassirius, hairy-tailed bats. Cory nor highness, lump nosed bats. Um, Nystirus or Nycterus, slit faced bats. Um, Myotis, 
mouse-eared bats. You know, it's like, um, it's really cool. It's really neat. But at the same time, like, duh, should have known that. You know, Steve, come on, fatty. Get your, get your facts straight, fatty. Um, the Dark Knight soundtrack is not, are not titled the same way. Um, first off, I want to say about, I want to talk, my favorite track off of Batman Begins is, is Molossus. It's the, it's almost, I think it's the music they're playing with chasing. And you get the closest thing to that Batman theme that, that is evolving in that particular scene. And, um, uh, Batman is run, you know, doing his thing, and, and it feels like a cool, adventurous Batman score. And there is some very touching, emotional music in this too. The the music is played as Bruce is talking to his father, and and the tender moments that are going on there, just so good, so good. It's it's, a, it's just really a good score overall. Then you hit the Dark Knight, and you're expecting more of the same. And we got a little bit of that, and I say that in a good way, not a bad way. But what he did for the Joker's thing. I don't, I don't even know what instrument that is that's making that buzzing noise that comes on that it's just so... It, it, it's a weird, eerie, you know, buzzing sound that's made by some instrument and, and it just builds until you get just... Doo-doo, doo-doo. I mean, you just get like a huge build to it and then, and then it's just real staccato big a bunch of low brass a bunch of timpanis coming in and just banging on some things and then and then cuts back out and it's just that's the joker you know it's like it's just a he's like a and he says himself i'm like a caged animal you know and that's what it is it's like a caged animal that's just getting ready to snap and when he snaps it's big but then he goes right back into just kind of being you know just looking for his next thing and so Hans Zimmer, genius in what he did for the Joker there. He also has a two-faced theme in there. You've got it at the end of the disc, the, the, the music that's playing as Jim Gordon is doing his monologue about who Batman is, and it goes into the end credits, of course. That's when you really get to hear kind of the Batman theme come back together and be there, and, uh, and, and it's an incredible piece of music. The whole thing is just... It's it's awesome. It's absolutely awesome. I love Hans Zimmer's scores for those two movies. Hans Zimmer, I think they passed him up. They even though they decided he was eligible, I think, and I'll be corrected if I'm wrong. I don't know that he got the Oscar nomination for Dark Knight. Um, speaking of adventurers and their soundtracks, you know that no talk of orchestral soundtracks will be complete without at least one. Uh, soundtrack by this man. He is responsible for the theme that makes everyone scared to go in the water. He is responsible for the theme that makes everyone cry when E.T. says ouch. He's responsible for the jazz from Catch Me If You Can. If you've ever seen that movie with Leonardo DiCaprio and Tom Hanks, I'm of course referring to John Williams. And in this case, the Indiana Jones scores uh, from Raiders right on through to Kingdom of the Crystal Skull. Particularly uh, the the end credits track from uh, The Last Crusade, which incorporates all this cool, cool music. One of my favorite music cues is uh, basically Indy's dad's theme um, from uh, Last Crusade. It, it evokes a certain emotion, but it also, I don't know, it's like when he's sitting there and he's like, Indiana, Indiana. Let it go. 
You know, when he does, when there's that whole thing that goes on and, and the music that plays there and, and it builds up and you also get, you know, the, 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 uh, oh, what am I trying, what's the word I'm looking for? The legendary feel that the fact that looking for the Holy Grail, almost a, almost a holy sacred music type feel to it. Um, the same that he did the same thing in Raiders, which with the Ark theme, you know, it was a very mysterious, old, but also sacred kind of feel to things. He had the very tribal, dark, occultic feel for Temple of Doom. You know, there was the adventure that was there. You know, all this stuff was back, of course, in Kingdom of the Crystal Skull. I'm least familiar with the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull soundtrack because I haven't picked that up yet. But, um, but my goodness, it, it's just a great great score but that that final track the end credits track when you get to go back into the Raiders March and that's the thing that makes John Williams Indiana Jones scores work so well is that Raiders March is what it's called the Raiders March the Raiders theme um you feel the adventure there you feel the search and you feel the traveling aspect of it uh, uh, go watch the special features if you have the first time they released the the original three Indiana Jones movies on DVD that came in a four disc set and the fourth disc was all bonus features and they talk about the music on there and basically Williams had come back to Steven Spielberg with um, two ideas you know the dun 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 and the uh, and that was one idea for a theme and the other idea for a dun 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 um and, and Spielberg's only direction, John Williams, was why don't we use them both? And so what you get in that theme and that really popular one that we know, the dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun, you get the adventure and you get the excitement of it, but then that secondary theme that it kind of rolls into, you get that traveling aspect of it. I mean, you feel the journey in that, and I absolutely love the, the, that, that music, and I love the way that it's able to be brought back up. And this is some of John Williams' genius, is he takes four or five notes, he makes a theme out of it, and he's able to use that in all sorts of ways to do a quiet moment, to do a huge big moment, to bring um, to bring a bunch of stuff together, but then he also has these other little themes that he ties into it, and it just works so well. I will say here and now, John Williams is a genius, and, th- and this is me knowing nothing about music. Now, there may be, and I would it would not surprise me, if there is a musician out there who listens to John Williams and are like, I can do that. Well, do it. Please do it. Be the next John Williams. You know, that's I just think John Williams is amazing in the stuff he's done because and, and and we have two more things we'll be talking about with John Williams here but because you take something like Jurassic Park you take Indiana Jones you take um, E.T. you take uh, even, some, even some of his stuff at Jaws not just the Jaws theme but some of the other stuff from Jaws um, and you take even the, the, his score for Far and Away and if you listen to all of these, you'll be able to tell, yeah, that's John Williams' movie. Um, in fact, I'd never seen Far and Away, and I had never even heard the score. And I came in my first year of college, I had a roommate, and I come in the room, and he had it on. And I was sitting there just kind of doing my thing, and I stopped, and I'm like, what are you listening to? And he's like, it's the Far and Away soundtrack. I'm like, oh. And I went back about and I said, who did this? He's like, I don't know. I said, John Williams, this is John Williams' music. He's like, there's no way. I don't know. I don't think so. I'm like, give me the CD. Sure enough, composed and conducted by John Williams. So he definitely has a style that you can point out and tell. However, 
he, he has a diverse style as well. I mentioned a minute ago the movie Catch Me If You Can, Leonardo DiCaprio and Tom Hanks, is a completely jazz soundtrack. If you go back and listen to some of his stuff where he's billed as Johnny Williams, some old westerns and stuff, he's now there is a there is a piece from a movie that he did as Johnny Williams that was a re, that was a western, and um, and it evoked the feeling of another. It sounded very similar to another piece that he would do later on in his career circa 1978 and I'll talk about that in a second but John Williams has enough diversity in his material that though you may be able to tell a John Williams piece it doesn't all sound the same he has a style but he does not constantly mimic himself he has some tricks that he uses, but he does not constantly mimic himself. And Indiana Jones is a perfect example of this because there are three distinct movies that are four now at this point that the soundtracks have a distinct feel to each of them that fit the movie very well. And again, it's another situation where if the music wasn't there, yeah, you'd miss it. But it doesn't draw attention to itself. It very much works for what is going on there in Indiana Jones. Now... You can't talk John Williams without talking Superman. Greatest superhero theme ever. I have a good friend named Jonathan, and Jonathan is a band director in a county near here. He's a music. He's a trained musician, very talented guy. Um, he he works uh, with his high school band. He is a bit of a closet geek. Uh, I don't think he would ever refer to himself as a geek, but he's got a little geek in him. And um, well, of course he does. He's in a band. <laughs> but no, I'm kidding. I love the band. I've I've worked with closely with several high school bands. Not that I'm a musician, but like to try to help them out and do whatever I can do for them. I, I love uh, band kids. I've got a lot of band kids that I work with. And they're great. They're always fun to hang out with, and they always have good music on them. So you can't fault them. Um, but he will tell you that John Williams' best work is the Superman soundtrack as a whole. I don't know that I agree with that just because that means I have to put off another very special body of work as it pertains to a series of movies that, that I'd have to look and say, yeah, it's better than that. And I don't know that I can do that. You know what I'm talking about and we're getting there. But, um, but it is an incredible score. It's an outstanding score. And the Superman theme in and of itself is just has become, and I will make this statement, the John Williams Superman theme, and I defy. And, and if you do, if you wanted to debate me on this, that's fine. But the John Williams Superman theme, and if you disagree with me, that's fine. That's fine. The John Williams Superman theme, and I don't see how you could disagree with what I'm about to say. The John Williams Superman theme. Just say it already, Steve. The John man, the John man, the John Williams Superman theme is as iconic. It has become as iconic as Superman himself. I think that when you hear that music, that is the John Williams Superman theme, you immediately know who it is that the music is made for. Um, it, there you go. I believe that with all my heart, that that, that, that music, and it is an outstanding theme. So much so, and, the, and here's the neat thing about John Williams' music on Superman. When, um, when John Ottman went to score Superman Returns, his initial plan was only to use the Superman theme. He had a point, and I, and I agree with this point, that in the past, uh, at this point almost 30 years, that music, orchestral music even, has evolved to where it sounds differently than it did back in the 1970s and early 80s. And I can see where he's coming from, and I agree with that. I, and he even said he can't, as a musician, he said, I can't 
really explain what it is, but there is a difference there. And, and I, I can see what he's saying, and I say, okay, just from a, as a listener. However, what he found is, is they would put in music from William's original score in certain places as a temp track, and it worked. Even in 2000, when did that come out, 2006? You know, it worked for what they were showing on screen for this more modern telling. And so he began to use more and more and more of William's original score in the work he was doing now for the Superman film. And because it fit and it works. Now, one of my favorite pieces from Superman the movie, though I love the theme, and I do love the theme, and I love the Krypton fanfare. I think the Planet Krypton, the music for, uh, called Planet Krypton, is some of is one of the most amazing just it's it is 2001 a space odyssey kicked up a notch there it is i said it thank you i said i mean i'm oh, there it is take it do with it what you want but my favorite one of my favorite pieces of music uh, from superman the movie comes as clark is standing out in the field with his mother and he's and he's getting ready to leave and you get that crane shot sweeping away and that sweeping music that just really fits where you're at in the scene and you and it's the rolling fields of Kansas and it's looking off to the north and and it and it feels sad but majestic and hopeful at the same time and just a great piece of music and i love that Ottman brought snippets of that back for his track memories in superman returns but i absolutely love the superman Score. Now, there are parts of it that get on my nerves when you listen to the CD, for example, when Lois Lane comes in and starts, Can you read my mind? You know, I'm not all about that, but but even the love theme is a great love theme. And it works so, 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 so well, uh, does the Superman soundtrack. Second to last one we're talking about here is Howard Shore's Lord of the Rings soundtrack. Now, we have talked a little Lord of the Rings on here in the forums. There was even some talk about Lord of the Rings, and some people didn't like it. I don't have a problem if you don't like Lord of the Rings. Kevin Smith has talked about in one of his evenings with Kevin Smith, but also, and he took the bit that he did and put it in Clerks 2, that, you know, these movies are nothing but people walking. And he says, the first movie, and he walks across the stage. Here's the second movie, and he walks across the stage. Here's the third movie, he walks across the stage acts like he's pulling a ring off his finger, looks down, drops it, and he's like, and there's the movie. Um, now, if you're a Lord of the Rings fan, as I am, you know there's so much more to the movies than that. You know that there's a lot of, that these are character pieces in a way. It's an adventure tale. It's a quest in a way, and and it's a world that Tolkien so richly created that you can completely immerse yourself in it and, and get lost there. It's a, It's amazing what these the novels the books are the movies i absolutely love and i will maintain that they are some of the most perfectly made films that we'll ever have i have the extended versions of all three films um i have the theatrical version of only one of the films but i absolutely love these movies and these are movies i saw repeatedly in theaters these are movies where i took three hours out of my day repeatedly in different intervals to go see i got to go see return the king at midnight with some friends and it was that was such a blast that was such a good time to go do that um these movies evoked a lot of emotion in me but one of the key things that's so great about these films is howard shore's score for these films he deserved an oscar for all three movies um 
he got it for Return of the King, and I feel like Return of the King won as many Oscars as it did because they were like, well, we've kind of passed it over the past few times. We really need to give it. And Return of the King deserved, or I mean, uh, The Lord of the Rings deserved Oscars all three years for the different scores. Howard Shore did a phenomenal job. This, Even if you don't like Lord of the Rings, if you've never been able to stomach those movies, if they're too long for you, if you find yourself in the moments of dialogue falling asleep, if you just like to fast forward to the battles, if you like orchestral music, if you like orchestrated scores of movies or classical type music, I want to encourage you to pick up these scores because they are that good. And though you may not have any clue what's happening as you're listening to this, I think you will hear just how great this stuff is. And there's something for everybody. If you like the big verbose moments and, and the loud, adventurous music, that's there. If you like the quiet, hauntingly beautiful, uh, evoking emotion of, of, of the love and the, and the mystery, and, and that's, it's there. If you like the scary stuff, it's there. Um, my favorite, one of my favorite pieces is um, Edoras from uh, The Two Towers. And it, it, is, it is the Riders of Rohan theme. And, it, and I've talked about this before. You've got just that, that haunting violin that plays. And I use the word haunting so much, too much, I'm afraid. And, and that is such a sad piece of music. Because at the moment in the movie, you're coming to a place there in Rohan that is so overwhelmed with sorrow. You know, it's lost, it's, its prince has died, the king is under the spell of worm tongue, and this really captures the bleakness of what's going on, not only in Rohan, but now all over Middle Earth. But the tune itself also has a, still has that, it has a regalness to it. You still feel like you're stepping into somewhere special and somewhere where people hold their heads high and it's a and, and it, it it evokes a pride and a hope for the people that are there. I just love that piece of music. Um, Annie Lennox did the song Into the West that was played during the credits of Return of the King. And um, Howard Shore, I think, even composed that or wrote that song. But uh, it... Um, in the movie Return of the King, there's a moment in the middle of the battle where basically they're all the good guys are kind of holed up behind a door where all the trolls and orcs are trying to, you know, bust through. And this is kind of their last stand. And Pippin, one of the hobbits, is sitting there talking to Gandalf the wizard. And um, he says, I never thought it would end like this. And Gandalf says, end? Death's not the end. You know, and he gives them this awesome speech about what comes after death, and it's so moving, but that Into the West theme swells up during it, and you just feel the hope of that and the and the beauty of that. The music that plays is Gandalf Falls. That he uses, Howard Shore uses a lot of, um, of vocals in his scores, and I, I can't think of the person's name, but it's a tenor. Sounds like he's from a voice choir, a little, and, he, and, he, and he's a tenor, and, he, and it's just... The, the use of the vocal, the, the human voice is just amazing with some of this stuff. The whispers of Elvin in some of the music is just so great. It's just a fantastic, fantastic score. You really, really should pick it up if you haven't already. Um, and that brings us to 
the final score we're going to talk about today. Now, already you're thinking what I've missed, what I've missed, what I've missed, what I've missed, and you know what I'm about to talk about. So go ahead, start getting your email ready, you know, fire up, get your hands on the home keys. <laughs> oh, get your hands on the old home keys and get ready to send the email and tell me what I missed because I know that I've probably left out a lot of some of your favorites and that's cool. That's great. I want to hear it because there's even a thread on the forums at geekoutpodcast.com slash forums where we where, where I ask people to talk about some of this stuff and, and I've left out some of their things intentionally because we're also going to have to do movie soundtracks that aren't necessarily orchestral. They're just, you know, soundtracks with songs and stuff in them. Um, and so I know I've missed some stuff. I'm not ignorant of that fact. But you can't talk movie scores without talking the movie score. Ladies and gentlemen, I give you Star Wars. <laughs> Back in the 70s, when Lucas was making Star Wars and he, he approached John Williams to do the score, he actually, um, well, John Williams was on Superman, then it was Goldsmith and Williams and Goldsmith on Superman. But he went to John Williams to do Star Wars, and he basically said, at this point in time, most sci-fi movies had a very electronica feel to them with their music. There, there wasn't a big you know, an epic score, but but Lucas knew what he wanted, and Lucas is very musical in his, ta you know, in, in what he, in his talents and his uh, proclivities, as, you know, as well as being the filmmaker that he is, and so he's very active with John Williams when he was talking to him about what he wanted, and he said, I want classical music. In fact, he used classical music as temp tracks for his movie. And I would, I'd love to hear the pieces that he used. You know, I, I imagine there's some Ride of the Valkyrie there. I would imagine there is some Planet Mars by Holst. Um, definitely, well, let's see, Wagner did uh, Ride of the Valkyries. Um, I would imagine possibly some Carmina Burana in, in there, in that piece uh, that, that he would use. I don't... Maybe even more of 1812. I, I, these are the kind of things. Beethoven's fifth was probably in there. Um, you know, I just imagine these are the kind of things that he used to uh, to kind of show Williams what he wanted. Now, John Williams, he will tell you that his big, as far as classic music goes, classical music goes, his some of his bigger influences are Gustav Holst, who did The Planets, and uh, Richard Wagner. Um, not Richard Wagner, ladies and gentlemen, but Richard Wagner. Um, and, and if you listen to Mars, the planet Mars, uh, by Holtz, in his, it is, I think it's the third movement in his symphony, The Planets. Um, and then you turn on Star Wars, and as the credits finish, as the opening scroll finishes rolling, and pans down, and the the ships fly across, you will hear a point where Williams is directly paying homage to, today we might even say sampling uh, Holtz and, and sampling Mars. It is good stuff. Um, but, uh, but yeah, so, so that's, and that's, what made, that's one of the things that made Star Wars so special is that Lucas took this and went out on this, in this direction with it and Williams just came along for the ride and I think we all agree did a phenomenal job did an outstanding job. Not only do you have that incredible Star Wars theme, not only do you have that very evocative Star Wars theme, which, by the way, the thing that makes it so good, the triangle. 
I defy you to take the little ding ling 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 out of the back of the Star Wars theme, and it sound it sound the same. It is it's um, the Star Wars theme in and of itself is great. Now it also I think at the time, and and some of you more hardcore Star Wars fans than I may know this for sure better, but I want to say that the Star Wars theme. Williams also in, originally intended to be uh, Luke Skywalker's theme. Now, having not knowing anything about future sequels, not knowing anything about prequels, you know that that because if you see Luke, there's a lot of times when Luke are doing things in the first movie where you get that Star Wars theme played in different ways. And so, um, because I think it was also intended to be Luke's theme, because Luke is the hero of the original trilogy. Make no mistake about it. Though the saga is about the rise and fall and the redemption of Darth Vader, um, or Anakin Skywalker, I should say. The hero of the original trilogy is Luke Skywalker. You may say the, the hero of the entire saga is Luke Skywalker. You could, I mean, that case could be made. Even though he's nowhere to be found in those first three movies, you could say he's the hero of the entire saga. But I digress, because I always do when I talk about Star Wars. In... I'm just going to go really quickly through the movies and talk about some of my favorite pieces of music from them. Number one, the Force theme, also called Binary Sunset. If you look on the track listings of, of the Star Wars soundtrack, it's Binary Sunset. It is the Force theme. That is, Luke is standing there looking out at the at the dual sun setting, the twin suns of Tatooine setting. It's the music that plays and swells up and, and goes into, you know, that music in that moment, it's such a magical piece of music. And you get the idea of this kid wishing for more, wanting more, looking on the horizon for more. But there's also the magic of the force that's in there. And, and you hear that. And that theme got really used again and again and again throughout those movies, especially in the prequels. Um, and used very effectively by Williams. But that's one of my favorite pieces of music. My favorite use of the force theme outside of when Luke is watching the sunset is in episode two surprisingly enough, as Anakin is saying goodbye to Padme when he's getting ready to go find his mother, the, the force theme swells, and as he's walking away and he gets on his speeder to go off, the force theme goes directly into the Duel of the Fates. And it's just a phenomenal way that Lucas did that. It's just, I love that piece of music, the force theme. And I love it whenever I hear it in those movies, you know, whether it's the quiet little, you know, just moments where, where it feels even more magical or whether it's the big full moments where something big is happening and it gives it that majestic or that um, that really important feel to what's going on. Well, another favorite way that I, I love that Lucas used it is in the opening of Revenge of the Sith as um, Obi-Wan and Anakin are flying through the battle headed to Grievous's ship. You hear that theme played very militaristically if that's a word. It has a very much of a war sound to it, and you understand that these are Jedi going to battle, and that's kind of what it, it evokes there in that moment. Um, when you hit Empire Strikes Back, of course, you've got to talk the Imperial March. This has become the definitive theme for any villain ever, and it is that... It's just amazing, and of course, I've talked before on, on other podcasts, and I'll mention here... My favorite use of the Imperial March comes in Empire Strikes Back when Luke, after he has kicked Vader off of the platform uh, in the carbon freezing chamber, he goes through the little tube and he comes out the other side. And as Vader shows up and just kind of stops and begins to throw things at Luke, 
they play a very ominous sounding, very slow version. It's not the march. It is it is much slower, a little more drug out, but very much more, as I said already, ominous in that moment as Vader is just slinging things with the force at Luke. And there's only one or two lightsaber hits in that moment as Vader will come at Luke and then he'll back away and sling something else at Luke with the force. Love that piece of music. And they and Williams used that effectively in the midst of Yoda and, uh, and Palpatine and Obi-Wan and Anakin's fights on, in Episode 3. Well, um, also in Empire, you have Yoda's theme. And Yoda's theme is so, so good. It's very quiet. It's very soft. It's very much... It is like Yoda. It is deceptively powerful. Because as you listen to Yoda's theme, it starts off very light and slow. And of course it builds as all of William's stuff does and all of this music does. But it has a deceptive power to it. Um, he brought that theme back twice in episode two. Once as Yoda is training the younglings, which is probably one of my favorite scenes in all of Star Wars. But then later on in the battle, after he has fought Dooku, and Dooku is bringing that big pillar or apparatus or whatever it is that's going to fall on Obi-Wan, as Yoda puts his lightsaber away to catch it with the Force, you hear his theme come up in, in a very dramatic way. And so, yeah, Yoda's theme quite deceptively powerful. Um... In Return of the Jedi, there at the end, number one, okay, I love Lapty Neck, and that's the original uh, song that was played by Cy Snoodles and Max Rebo Band um, in Return of the Jedi. Um, I love the original Ewok Celebration song. I like the new one, okay? I mean, had we gotten the new one back in 1983, um, I think it would be just as beloved as what the Ewok song is because it, it fits the feel of what's going on. It has that celebratory feel the kind of wind down feel uh, maybe I would have liked something a little more powerful knowing you know knowing that we had the Ewok celebration song which was kind of big and robust and this and, and the celebration music at the end of Return of the Jedi is a little bit toned down from what maybe you'd expect it to be but I do like it okay but the the, the music cue that just kicks my butt in uh, episode 6 in Return of the Jedi is as after Vader says, Sister, so you have a twin sister. Your feelings have now betrayed her too. And he's all, you know, he talks about changing her to the dark side. When Luke comes up and starts going nuts, the music goes nuts. And the choir singing, because up until this point, the only chorale we had heard, the only choir we'd heard, the only human vocals we'd heard, is the low bass and baritones as the emperor is there but now the whole choir is going nuts as it just it's so it's just so big and so huge as as luke is just backing vader down this is oh, i'm getting way too excited just thinking about the movie and the music at the same time now it's a great that is my favorite piece from return of the jedi when you get into the prequels I think it's very obvious some of the best pieces of music. Episode 1, The Duel of the Fates. You know, when I first heard The Duel of the Fates, I was like, really? Choir? Choral? Choral? Vocals? Huh? Humans? What? What? That's not right. But that piece of music is so amazing. I love to just turn it on in either a really good pair of headphones or on a really good sound system. 
because it, you just get caught up in what's going on. You've got that huge choir singing that Sanskrit, and then all of a sudden it's just real light, you know, for a minute. You know, I'm, I'm sorry to go into the singing of the music. And then it just comes back into the big music, you know, the big feeling. And you really feel a duel of the fates. You feel the battle beginning. You feel the battle building up and you feel the battle coming to an end you know and you feel that the fates are truly dueling with one another and it's such a good piece of music um in episode two uh man i love the chase theme the chase music from when obi-wan and anakin are going after zam wessel and that was unique to me in as much as william stuck in some electric guitar there if you listen to the episode 2 soundtrack, it's there. There's some electric guitar in there, and that was really neat. But also, you've got the Across the Stars theme, the love theme from, from the prequels. And, um, and Williams used that effectively in different ways in different places. But it's a great piece of music. Now, whether you like the love theme or not, and it's hard to really talk about the Across the Stars music without talking about the love story of, of Anakin and Padme, I guess. And, and, and I can't really get behind that love story, as I've told you before. But the music is just outstanding. I love to hear that music. It's a great, great piece of music. But Williams absolutely, I feel like, topped himself when he hit Battle of the Heroes in Episode 3. Now, Battle of the Heroes is a great companion piece to Duel of the Fates. And, and, and you get the similar feel, and they work, and they flow together so well. I actually am disappointed that on the soundtrack, even in the Anakin versus Obi-Wan track, you never get that Duel of the Fates stuff in there. You get that little bit of the Imperial March, but you never get that Duel of the Fates stuff that it cut into in the movie. In the movie, I absolutely love the way that went because Anakin and Obi-Wan are fighting in that Duel of the Fates, and then as they step outside after the shields have been disabled by their lightsaber battle, all of a sudden the music just shifts into the Duel of Fates, and that's where Yoda and Palpatine are in the Senate going at it. And, uh, and, and you see that the fates are dueling and it looks like evil is going to win the day and it's just an amazing john williams ability to score these movies and to make them flow so well together even though there is a distinct difference in episode four with the rest of the films but they still flow in, in every single one of star wars and john williams did such a great job in episode three of bringing back a few subtle cues here and there that really flowed right on into episode four especially as you listen to the closing credits he brought back the throne room theme there's leia's theme of course there's luke's theme which is also the star wars theme um you you get all this stuff tying together the two ends of the original trilogy and the prequel trilogy and it just works so stinking good and uh you know and i haven't even talked about the cantina band i haven't even talked about here they come i haven't even talked about um oh my gosh the the the, uh, the Augie's Municipal Marching Band for crying out loud, which is one of my more favorite pieces of music in any of the Star Wars movies. I just love it. I don't know why. I just do. I like it a lot. I like it a lot. Haven't even talked about Anakin's theme that was done in Episode One that gave us a very light, very hard to spot Imperial March. Now, if you watch the movie at the end of the credits, it's there. On the soundtrack, the one disc soundtrack as it was originally released in 1999, you don't get that final little. Um, very low bra or low strings Imperial March that's so blatant, but it, it is there in Anakin's theme, though, and that's amazing to me. John Williams, freaking genius! You're a genius, John Williams. So, um, 
there it is. Those are the things. I know I missed some things. You know, I didn't talk about the Back to the Future score. I didn't talk about, um, oh, my gosh, what were some other ones I, that, that were there? I didn't really talk Jurassic Park that much. I didn't talk. Th- let me know what you love. Let me know what you're digging on when it comes to orchestral music in, in, in movie soundtracks. would love to hear you talk to me some about movie scores. That's going to wrap it up, though, for us this time. Uh, Join us next time when we're going to try to have a special guest on talking about a special topic and uh, for a very special podcast. Tune in for a very special episode of Blossom. In the meantime, you can email me with comments, questions, concerns, frustrations, or anxieties at geekoutonline at gmail.com. Geekoutonline at gmail.com. Would love to hear from you. If you've got a little extra time on your hands, head over to www.geekoutpodcast.com slash forums. And there we can talk about the show. We can talk about things you want to hear on the show. We've got a section to talk movies, television shows. There's even a Star Trek movies thread going on in the movie section of the Geek Out Loud forums. We've got a, a Geek Out Loud book club that started up. We've got our friends of Geek Out Loud there. Everybody's there waiting for you to come join the discussion at geekoutpodcast.com forward slash forums. Well, guys, I really appreciate you being here with me. I've had a few people express some interest in T-shirts. Um, again, this isn't placing an order for a T-shirt. It's just letting me know if you would order one at, at a cost comparable to what, uh, if you go over to 10th Wonder or Starkville's House of Elf, what their shirts are costing. So um, let me know if you'd be interested. If we could sell at least 100 shirts, we'll print at least 100 shirts. So um, thanks a lot, guys. This is Big Honk and Steve. Thank you once again for joining us. You guys have a great week, month, or however long it is until you hear from me again. Thanks a lot.